right. Well, I do hope you um, took to heart and I guess enjoyed is, is a good word. I'm not quite sure uh, with that quiet time because everything we're doing from my perspective is sort of building, building, building. And so, um, you know, I really just want to work you over really well in the scriptures, what I want to do. So uh, that by the time we finish, we are on the mountaintop worshiping Jesus like never before. So we did our uh, F words, right? And really, we, we can summarize all those just, you know, with one F word, foolishness, right? Uh, anything, the things of the world are just foolishness in the eyes of the Lord, but Praise God, he uses the foolish things of the world like me and you, right, to uh, proclaim his greatness. But those things, those, those F words, are things that we allow into our lives that diminish or destroy um, the flame, the very life of Christ in our lives. And, you know, we answered the question up front, but I hope it is still your answer that this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. no. I'm going to let it shine. You know, besides our own hiding that we do, as I said before, we have an enemy. And he's powerful. Satan has been released for a time by God himself into the world to do his thing, to rise up in opposition to the things of God, to try to destroy the very work of God. So we have to know and pay attention to the fact that if we have a flame, particularly if we are in a stage of life where we are burning brightly, okay, We have got to be ready for an attack because Satan will try to do what? Okay, that's why I put that word blow in parentheses. Don't let Satan out your flame. Don't let him blow it out. And girls, Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He is crafty. He is the enemy of God, and he is after you, personally. This is not some idea that man dreamed up. It's not Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Okay? There really is a devil. He really is after you. And he really wants to keep you from shining as brightly as possible. And he will do everything in his power. But let's realize, he is not omnipotent. Satan does not have all the power. He has a measure of power allotted him by God. The power Satan has in your life is what you give him. It's an allotment of power. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Only God knows everything. But Satan will play the cards you deal him. He can't read your mind, but he can read your mouth 
and your behavior. And if you are a person that operates out of fear, that becomes evident quite quickly. Guess where Satan will come? He will hit you to try to make you afraid of things, other things. But what most people don't realize is primarily Satan will come after you in your area of strength. Okay? Uh, Because if you're already a fraidy cat, he's fine to let you stay that way. Okay? He will still use fear as a tool because he knows he can get you with it. But he will come after you in areas of strength. So we have got to be on guard. We have got to be ready and prepared. Notice in your quiet time you did. Part of the victory on Mount Carmel was Elijah's preparation for that big God moment, right? When God defeated in front of everybody those uh, false prophets. So we've got to realize that we need a strategy in our lives because Satan is trying to blow out our flame or certainly diminish it in some kind of way to keep us from shining brightly because as we let our light shine brightly, others see our good works and they will bring glory to God in our Father in heaven, right? That's the way God made it. So we have an enemy, but we have a Savior. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have an enemy, but he is an already defeated enemy. We don't have to fight the ultimate battle anymore. Jesus won. It's a done deal. He won on the cross. So as long as Jesus is alive, which he is then we have everything we need pertaining to life and to godliness and every tool and weapon we need for the warfare against the evil one that's coming against us. So let's realize up front, yes, we have an enemy. we got to be aware. But we have to also be aware we have already won the battle. We do not have to give in. Okay? So, as I said last night, I always say the two great loves of my life. Jesus Christ and my husband, Kurt Cates, have completely and radically changed my life. Their love and their faithfulness to me has really freed me up to be all that God has intended for me to be and designed for me to be. And that calling that I have on my life, really the aim of my life, the overall theme of the life of Laura Cates can be summed up from Deuteronomy. My favorite book of the Bible, right? Here, Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And because of that, there's an implication. So, Laura, because the Lord is our God, because he is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, and with all your might. That is the theme that God has given me, the aim for my life. But he's also given me an agenda. One time I was um, 
studying for a Sunday school lesson. We were teaching in the book of Ezra. You know, don't you go around hanging out looking for your life verse in Ezra? Well, I wasn't even looking for it, but I was just teaching Sunday school. And, uh, boy, the Lord just, it really turned up the heat a notch when I got to Ezra 7.10. And it says that Ezra set his heart, okay? And the Lord told me, that's you, girl. You need to set your heart to study the Word of God, to practice it, to live it, in other words, and teach it. And that was the, the agenda that God had prepared for Ezra. And I believe that's the agenda that in my speaking life that's what, and teaching life, that's what God has for me to do. To set my heart to study the Word of God, to live it, to learn it, to live it, and to teach it. So I'm here fulfilling what God has called me to do. And I would certainly pray that you would find out what thing God has called you to do. And you would set your heart and your mind toward doing that all day, every day. But part of what the reason why I bring that up is because notice my aim and, and my agenda came from the Word of God. We can have all kind of, you know, there came a time, and I can't remember when it was, but particularly in business, everybody was writing their purpose or their mission statement in business, you know. And so... Uh, some families were doing that. We did that as a family. We wrote our mission statement and, and did all that stuff as a family so our kids know, you know who we were and all that. And uh, there's a lot of good mission statements out there. Churches have mission statements. There's a lot of really good things. But, y'all, if, it if it's not rooted and grounded in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word... It's not powerful. It doesn't have the power that the Word of God has. So as we keep going and we talk about don't let Satan out your flame, again, I want you to focus on you, your relationship with the Lord, your flame, and give, as I talk through some things with you, give an honest, brutally, honest appraisal of where you are in your love relationship with Jesus. And part of what I'm trying to do here this weekend is exhort you, and my Sunday school class laughs at me because there's a difference between encouragement and exhortation. And some people are encouragers, and my Sunday school class says, I'm an exhorter. Exhortation is encouragement with a kick. My son in class made that up. So it's uh, so just with a little emphasis, okay, uh, to help you understand how serious a thing this is. But I want to exhort you really to what I call a holy discontentedness with anything in your life. It does not line up under the word of God, point you to the person of Jesus Christ and cause you to change and transform. So I hope part of this weekend serves to exhort you, to encourage you with a kick, to examine your heart, your life, and to really take a, you know, flying leap, a step, a hop, a skip, whatever, a flying leap, just 
into the Lord, a new level of intimacy with Jesus, a transformation from the inside out, so that you begin to develop in your life what the charisma. Charisma is that Greek word that's gift. It's a grace gift, a gift of God. The the word for grace is charis, and we get charisma from that. A lot of our words that we would know or say, we don't realize how rooted they are in Scripture, okay? But charisma is the word that Paul took and used it for this grace of God living and active and operating in our lives. And what do we think of someone who has charisma? I mean, they're very appealing, right? So my desire is to exhort you into a level of intimacy with Jesus that you develop a charisma and a beauty that just exudes Jesus. Now, you have probably known someone in your life. Maybe you know somebody now. I hope it'll you will be this someone. But somebody that I describe that has such a the undescribable, you can't really describe it, but you can clearly discern about this person, a grace, a beauty, a confidence, a charisma that, I mean, anytime you spend with them, after you leave their presence, it's like you just feel like, wow. I mean, just time with them, which is, wow. I mean, they may not even have said much to you, but just because of who they are and, and that charisma about their life, you're attracted to them. And then when you, you know, leave their presence, it's like, wow, you're standing up straighter, you're smiling. I mean, you know, have you known somebody like that? They just bless you when you're around them. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's what the world calls the it factor, right? Have y'all heard of that? That's kind of an old phrase, but it's an it factor. And people who have it, right, uh, they have attributes and attractiveness. And something about them, it just draws people in. They're engaging to be with. They're energizing. You just feel so good when you're around them. They have a pleasant countenance and this magnetic confidence about them, right? They just, they're it, man. And they communicate this, this uh, intensity of passion. The French would say, je ne sais quoi. It's just, they got it, man. They're just, it's this mysterious factor about people that just make them irresistible. But it also transforms you for having been with them, Right? That kind of person, that combination of personality traits, behavior, and attitude about them that creates a wholeness and it radiates charisma, right? And it transforms other people. That's a full flame life, isn't it? That is a life burning so brightly for Jesus. That just when you're in the presence of someone like that, it transforms you, right? Well, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about being a full-flame person. I think it's possible and desirable that every Christian would be that way. Would so exhibit the charisma of God's grace in their lives that... 
they have that outshining radiance. Hebrews 1.3 says about Jesus, he is the radiance of God's glory. Psalm 34 says they looked to him and were radiant. And we know about Moses going up on that mountain in the presence of the Lord and he came down and what? Shekinah, radiance, glory about him. So what I'm talking about here, I affectionately call the glory glow. Okay? A person with the it factor, man, they've got a glory glow about their lives, right? When it's a person that is a godly person that has this charisma operating in their lives. So that's what I'm talking about. Where does charisma come from? And who is it given to? Listen to these words in Ephesians. Golly, I love these words. God has freely bestowed the gift of grace on us those who believe, in the beloved Jesus Christ. For in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Y'all, sometimes we, we think that old Gatlin Brothers song, you know, all the gold in California is in the bank in the middle of Beverly Hills and somebody else's name. You know, we just think everybody else got all the charisma. They got this and they got that. Well, I just, I just don't have that much. Y'all, God says right here, Ephesians, in Jesus Christ, he has freely bestowed this grace on us. And God doesn't kind of just medicine drop her out a drop at a time. He lavishes it on us. That word lavish is such an incredible word. It means to exceed over and above, to abound, to overflow, to excel. It's like all the overflowingness of God himself and his grace. He has poured forth into each one of us as believers. So you have access. You have all you need to glow. Are you? Do you? Charisma, grace, gift is in each one of us. Now, remember from what I said last night, I am not talking about conforming your life to a standard externally. Remember Christmas tree, Christian? I'm not talking about hanging grace ornaments on yourself and walking around and thinking you are gracious. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that vital connection in life in John 15, where he is the vine, we are the branches, and literally the life of the vine is pouring forth into the branches. That is the life that we have. Apart from him, we can do nothing. nothing. Why is it we live our lives? As if that said, apart from him, we can do most things pretty well. <laughs> Isn't that the way we live a lot? We live in our own strength. We're walking in the flesh. We're praying. We're asking God to bless our plans. But we are not walking by the power of the Spirit. We are not submitting our life and our will to the life of the vine and the will of the vine in our lives. This is John 15 I'm talking about. I'm talking about being full of sap 
and very green is what the psalmist says about an old person. That's what I want to be when I'm old. And I know a lot of you are sitting there thinking, you're already there. <laughs> yeah, I told him, I said, y'all, I'm sorry. Every time I start talking about young mommies, I'm just looking at y'all over here. But anyway, old mommies too. You know? I want to be full of sap and very green. I want the very life of Jesus Christ, the vitality and the intensity of my connection to him to remain so close and so firm that that charisma pouring out of me at all times and that when people are with me they are so blessed by the very life of Jesus Christ touching their lives through me that they are transformed that's how I want to be and that's how a flaming woman should be okay (laughs) just glowing all the time (laughs) but there are some necessary things practices that believers have got to build into their lives if they're going to tend their flame, right? A flickering flame, a dim flame, is very vulnerable to attack. It's very vulnerable. Think about if you've got a blazing fire going, that would be much harder to extinguish than if you just had one tiny little flicker. A tiny flicker is easy to extinguish. So we've got to do things to build up that flame, to tend the flame in our lives so that Satan has a much harder time if he's trying to it out, okay? And first and foremost, you've got to be a woman of the word. There is no way around it. Jesus Christ himself is called the word of God. Jesus communicates to us the fullest expression of the nature and character of God. That word logos, logos, however you want to pronounce it, it it means what has been said, but it also means all the thoughts and power behind what has been said. When God created everything, how did he do it? He spoke things into being. And he created everything by Jesus, John 1. Uh, those, that scripture is just, to me, one of the most beautiful. I'm sort of a word merchant. I did go to graduate school in journalism. I love putting words and ideas together. And I truly believe that John 1 passage is one of the most beautifully written, most powerful set of words we have in scripture for us to be able to think about God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And this life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens 
every man. Now Jesus, all things came into being by him and for him. He is the light and the life of all men. Apart from him, the word, the living word of God, we can do nothing. Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. All that God has had to say to us is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, you know what? All that Old Testament stuff, I came to fulfill it all. I'm all the law. I'm all the prophets. I'm the total package. And Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. He upholds all things. How? By the word of his power. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, spoke, let there be light. Let light shine out of darkness. That same God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want light to be a part of your life? You want that flame burning? Spend less time in Facebook and more time in FaceTime Jesus. The light of the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. We go on in John 1, John 1, 14. You all know this by heart probably. And the word became flesh. He put on skin like me and you and dwelt among us. To dwell means to set up residence, to take up residence. He began to live among us. And we beheld, we saw his glory, his shining radiance, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We could see it. He radiated it, that charisma, that grace. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So we, and he explained him, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten of the God, of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus Christ himself, the word of God, has explained God to us. Well, God, I just don't understand. I did that forever, y'all. I like knowing stuff. And I think in my fleshly mind, if I can just understand it, I'm okay with doing it. Right, Lord, if I can understand, just tell me what's going to happen, and then let me understand. If I can understand it, I'm okay with it. Good thing Abram didn't say that when God said, Hey, hey, come to a land, leave everything, and come to a land that I'm going to show you at a later time. (laughs) What? (laughs) Y'all, I don't have to understand it. And anyway, y'all, think about this. We try to understand stuff. We know Isaiah 55, that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? How is my feeble, teeny tiny little postmenopausal brain <laughs> going to understand fully and comprehend God? How's that happen? It's not going to happen this side of heaven, right? But anything we want to know about God, we can find out 
Because Jesus Christ, the Word, explains God to us, and He will explain God to us, guess what? Hand in hand with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that works the Word into us, experientially, right? So the whole setup is there. God has worked it out for us to be able to know Him. He has given, He is the Word, He spoke the Word, He has given us the Word, and He has given us the Spirit to use with the Word to make it real in our lives. Okay? The word is very, very, very important. Jesus himself, when he was tempted by the devil, what did he do? Spoke the word, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but lives how? By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Suppose everything for you stopped, and from now until the time of your death, you had to live only on knowing the amount of scripture that you know right now. How nourished would you be for the rest of your life? If that is true, we don't live just physically. We really live when we live spiritually, and we live spiritually by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Girls, we don't miss many meals, do we? Physical meals. We sure as shoot and make sure we eat. <clears throat> More important than that, sure as shooting, we need to be feeding on the Word of God. There is no substitute, none. Scripture's clear. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the way, the one and only way, the truth. All truth that is is summed up in Jesus Christ. And if we're going to find out the truth, we've got to find it in the Word, in Jesus Christ. He's the life. He's our Messiah. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's our High Priest. Hallelujah! Jesus is all that. And we praise God that He dwelt among us, but He also dwells in us right? Do you know that we are commanded to give attention to the fact that Jesus dwells in us? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ, let me give you an amplified version, take up residence in you such that you are subject to it, it has authority over you, and it influences your life for good. Let the word of Christ so live in you that it is the controlling factor in every area of your life. It doesn't say the word is to dwell on our bedside tables. It doesn't say the word is to dwell somewhere on a bookshelf or even on our desk at work where people, you know, can see, oh, there's the word. Of course, they don't notice the dust on top of it. It's not to dwell in that big family Bible that you got and you have it laid open there somewhere in your home. The word of God is to dwell, to take up residence and have authority over us, in us. Years ago, on our 25th anniversary, my husband does not like to go anywhere. He does not ever want to go anywhere except go. We have some property west of town. He wants to go on his track. That's all. He, I want to go everywhere, right? So whenever he wants to do something for me that's meaningful, he knows, well, she'll like it if I take her somewhere. So, and boy, it's, it's good to have a daughter. 
My daughter helped out on this one. My 25th anniversary, he surprised me and took me to New York City. Okay? It was so fun. I just loved it. And it was only a weekend of, I think, Thursday night to Sunday or something. But it was fabulous. We saw a Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. We did a carriage ride through Central Park. At night, after we had dinner, he took me to the top of the Empire State Building and proposed to me. Mm-hmm. I said yes. <laughs> it was really fun. But one of my favorite things that we did in, in one of my favorite places in New York City is the New York Public Library. And you go in there, and I think it's on the third floor, but it's called the McGraw Rotunda. And it is just fabulous. It's so beautiful. The work, there's these giant murals. And I mean, they are stories tall and wide. There's four murals, and it's the history of the printed word, okay? Three of them have to do with the Bible. Can you believe something in New York City? New York City Public Library System has made the declaration that all printed word, the word of God is the most powerful and most important thing among it. The first panel there shows Moses coming down on the ma- off the mountain with the tablets written by the finger of God himself. So the muralist in New York City says the written word started with the very finger of God writing the words on the tablet. The second one shows the the scribes copying those scriptures over and over on those scrolls. The next one shows the Gutenberg printing press, printing the word of God for the first time for everybody to be able to have one. And you know what? I don't even remember what the fourth one is because I was so stunned that in New York City that, that it would give such credence to God. But the word of God is powerful. And if New York City makes that kind of statement, I think that's a powerful statement. But y'all, these days, society doesn't value the word of God. Unfortunately, there's a lot of churches that don't value the word of God. And there's a whole lot of people sitting in churches that don't value the word of God anymore. When things started getting dicey for Jesus, after he'd been out speaking truth for a while, you know, then the religious people were after him to shut him up. And uh, so it became dangerous for him, really, to be out speaking. But uh, at one point in time in John 6, it's, uh, we learned that many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I just love that. They were committed to Jesus. They had committed their lives to him. And they understood, at least in a measure, that he had the words of eternal life, the words of life. And they could be found no place else. So they, they were even willing to risk their lives hanging out with Jesus because they were so strongly convinced he had the words of life. What about you? Are you so strongly convinced? This is where this honest appraisal comes in. That you have the word of life. That Jesus is the word of life. How much do you value the word? Now, you might say one thing, but I'm not asking you what you say about how you value the word. 
How does your life display how much you value the Word of God? Does your life match what you say about how you value the Word of God? Is this Logos, the communication of God himself to us? Do you view this? Do you have a high view of Scripture? Are these the words of life? And if you say yes, that has implication, doesn't it? Then that means you're going to live on them. That means your growth and your sustenance will come right here. Now, the Barna organization and, and... Somebody told me somebody had a question about uh, research, and, and Barna, B-A-R-N-A, is this research group that does a lot of great work. And here's some of the stuff they found. That uh, surprisingly few people are focused, believers, among believers, surprisingly few are focused on completely cooperating with God to experience the kind of whole life transformation that's described in the Bible, and that is made possible only through relationship with him. Now listen to this. When faced with a moral or ethical choice, 26% of born-again believers make moral choices based on biblical principles. One out of four. That means there are three out of four people that love the Lord, go to church, say, God is important in their lives and that the Bible is the word of God, yet they do not make their decisions on biblical principles. That's adults. Only 12% of believing teenagers make moral choices based on the biblical principles. And this is 10 years ago. These It's probably worse now. 24% of born-again adults said that their primary consideration for decision-making is doing whatever feels right or comfortable in the situation. One in four believers. Situational ethics. In other words, there is no absolute truth. I just do what feels good at the time or seems right to me at the time. 34% of uh, teenagers said that. Just whatever feels right, that's what I do. And y'all, the statistics go on and on and on. We say one thing about the word, but we need to start living what the word really is. Lubbock, Texas, we have a problem. I believe that the problem is rooted in the fact that believers no longer believe that the Bible is the word of God and that it has authority in their lives. Acts 17, 28, for it is in him, Jesus Christ, that we live and move and have our being. Now, I believe so strongly the only reason I stand before you today with breath in my body is because the life of Jesus Christ is in me. And God has ordained it to be so for this time. It is in him that I have life and that I move and have being. And same way with you. Apart from him, I can do nothing. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, that God would, he prayed for us, that God would sanctify us. There's a churchy word. Sanctify, to sanctify is to make holy, okay? To sanctify is to set apart. We're set apart 
from the world for God himself, right? Now, once again, this is one of those uh, kinds of words that we don't, if, since we're not, uh, maybe you are, somebody is, of the Jewish background and of the Old Testament people, we don't quite get the full picture. But that God would make us holy. Well, in Jewish ceremonial law, there were three categories of things. There was unclean, clean, holy. Okay? Three categories. Now, things that were, there were some things that were unclean that could never change categories. A dead body. Unclean. It could never be made clean and certainly never could be made holy. Right? But... <coughs> a priest or someone that came to anoint the dead body, for a time when they touched that dead body, they would be unclean, but they were eligible then to do the ceremonial washings, right? And then they would be clean. So they could fit into that clean category. Well, guess what? In Jewish ceremonial law, only something in the clean category was eligible to be made holy. 1 John 1, 9, ring a bell for us. <laughs> that we were, that God's, Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That we were cleansed by washing of the water with the word, right? What about that labor there in the tabernacle and in the temple? The priests had to do all the ceremonial washings before they could go into the holy place to be present before the Lord. Right? So Jesus prayed for us that God would sanctify us, make us holy, take us all the way from being dead bodies in our trespasses and our sins, make us alive together with Jesus Christ, and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that then we are eligible to be made holy by God himself. And Jesus says to God, Ask him to sanctify us in the truth. And then in case we weren't sure, he defined it. Thy word is truth. Okay? Now, and I I just got to jump back. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 in this cleansing and holy thing. Think about this in terms of that. That Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, for believers, for the church, for the bride, right? That he might do what? sanctify us, right? Make us holy, right? How? Having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, that he might do what? Present us to himself, the church. Present us to himself in all her glory, all her shine, all her full flame, right? That we might be holy, and blameless. You see how the Bible, it just ties everything together all the time. You can't get away from it. All this stuff is all throughout Scripture. But anyway, God defines truth. His word is truth. Uh, Growing up in New Orleans, there was a church that had a marquee on one of the freeways, and it had their kind of church motto. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Now, I understand their point, and that's awesome to have that, But let me just tell you, God said it, that settles it. Whether you choose to believe it or not, right? Scripture is authentic and authoritative 
whether you believe it and do it or not. God said it, that settles it. So we might as well line up under it, okay? Now, Acts 18.5 tells us that shortly after his conversion experience, the Apostle Paul did what? Began devoting himself completely to the Word of God. And then look at the influence the Apostle Paul had throughout history. He wrote part of the Bible. He is part of the Word of God now. Because the first thing he did after salvation was devote himself completely to the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us, and you know this, the Word of God is what? Living! Active! Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing us, judging the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, right? When was the last time the Word of God pierced you? Y'all, there have been a couple of times, and one of them just not all that long ago, last year, where I'm just talking to God, and I just say something to Him, I just pour my heart out to Him, and I tell you what, He pierces me with His Word. Sometimes in a startling way to get my attention and say, hey, girl, let's cut that out. And sometimes in a sweet, gentle way, he lovingly, yet firmly, pierces me with his word. Not to harm me, but to draw me to himself and for my good. Uh... Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is completely about the Word of God. But it's too long, even for me, today. (laughs) I can't do all of Psalm 119. But Psalm 19 kind of has a shortened thing. So listen to this about the Word of God, right? It's perfect. It restores your soul. Anybody got a dry soul? The word of God will restore your soul. It is sure. It makes wise the simple. You want wisdom? Start with the word of God. The word of God is right. It will never lead you astray. And you know what the result of that is? It rejoices your heart. The word of God is pure, unalloyed, no mixture of error. It is pure. It enlightens the eye. The fear of the Lord, the word, is clean, and it endures forever. The word of God will endure forever. It's true. My pastor, not long ago, was preaching a sermon. He used the term true truth. And I thought, why are you saying that? Truth is truth. But y'all know, not in our society today. Everybody has their own truth. Well, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. Jesus, the word is true, truth. Righteous, right with God, all together, no error. It's more desirable than gold, much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey. The word warns us. In keeping the word, there's great reward. It helps us to discern our errors. It cleanses us from hidden faults. It keeps us from presumptuous sin. How can a young man or a young woman keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the word. We know thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against God. 
Ephesians chapter 6, the weapons of our warfare, defensive and offensive weapons, right? We are to gird our loins of defensive weapons with truth. And then offensively, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've got the defense and the offense covered when we have the Word of God. Paul instructs Timothy to be faithful to Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired. That word is God-breathed out. All Scripture is God-breathed. And profitable can be carried together with for teaching. All right? The word tells us what's right. For reproof, the word tells us what's not right. For correction, the word tells us how to get right. And for training in righteousness, the word tells us how to stay right. Scripture does all of that. Why? That the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The scripture is our equipment. It's our attitude adjustment and it's our equipment for the good works that God has prepared uh, for us. Years ago, Rick Warren wrote a book called A Purpose Driven Life. It was a long time ago. But I couldn't believe it. meant it caught fire. Churches were having purpose driven life small groups. It was all over the bookstores. Everybody was reading purpose-driven life. It was great. I mean, so many Bible studies, churches, everything. It was awesome. As far as I can tell, his theology's right on. And I mean, it was just great to me that suddenly everybody's talking about the purpose-driven life, you know? Well, I also started noticing something, though. I mean, I'd be in conversation with somebody, and I don't always quote chapter and verse. Well, the Bible says, you know, but I'll just say scripture like in my own words as I'm talking to people in conversation, right? And I would notice, I would say something, and people would go, oh, Rick Warren said that. <laughs> and well, at first, I kind of just let it roll off my back, you know. But then it happened to me enough, I had enough, okay? And I would, most of the time, politely, I hope, say, no, Jesus said that. <laughs> okay? But y'all... That we've slid. We've slid away from spending the time in God's Word ourselves into reading what somebody else says about God's Word. Our little devotional books. Devotional books are great. They are great to focus our minds and our hearts devotionally on the Lord. But they are not the Word of God. Rick Warren wrote, based on the Word of God, great stuff, but it's not the Word of God. There is one standard, and that standard is Scripture. And we are not to compare our lives to what Rick Warren says. We are to compare what Rick Warren says to the Scripture, and our lives must line up with that. The Word is what is most important. My next-door neighbor, she is darling. She has been in a Bible study with a group of women at her church for 25 years, and they have not once studied the Bible. And I, I joke with her, and I tell her, do not tell me you went to Bible study. Tell me you went to your book club. And she laughs about it. I mean, she's got, you know, she's used to me, I guess. <laughs> but y'all, studying some other book is not a Bible study. Even if that book is about 
something in the Bible. Okay? Let's have a basic level of understanding here. The Bible is the standard. Now, well, we've moved on now, but for a while everybody was quoting Sarah Young, Jesus Calling. Now, you may love that devotional. I do not love it. When she first came out with it, some of the things that she said about what happened to her when she wrote it and her intent for the book, I believe were biblical. They were ascriptural. They were not in keeping with God's word. You make that decision for yourself. But a lot of people have Jesus calling by their bedside, and they read it morning and evening, and they post it on Facebook, and they put it on Instagram, and they quote it, and they're stunned by the things that that says. Y'all, that's not the word of God. That is what a woman is saying. We have got to be so careful and so serious that we are in the word of God, not what somebody else says. Now look, I'm a reader. Books are my friends. My library is unbelievable. I have so many books. I love books. I love to read and chew on ideas I get from other people, a new way to think about something. But it, I must go to the scripture for what I'm going to think about something. And I would highly recommend that to you. Devotional books are fine. I'm not anti-devotional books. I am anti-you substituting time in the word of God by using a, somebody else's words. I was at a luncheon, nice little Christian ladies, and one of the young mommies said uh, she's got four kids and two twins that are two, and just, you know, she says, I just, it's so hard for me to find time to be in God's Word. And so this other lady who I didn't know at the time, but she was actually this young woman's mentor, she said, well, you know, if you only have five minutes, she said, get a little devotional book and just read that for five minutes. Boy, I mean, it started turning up in me. I had to wait, back off, back off, because I didn't know most of these people. But later on, when that lady stepped out of the room, the older lady, I was right next to the young mommy, and I just said to the young mommy, you know what? If all you have is five minutes, spend that time in the Word of God. That's what's living. That's what's active. That's what will change and y'all, I say the same thing to you. Uh, how many people, how many people here would go to the cafeteria? Okay, by the way, back to Miss Patterson from last night. Uh, you know, the one that took us to church when I was a little girl. Periodically, they would take us out to lunch afterwards, and we'd go to the cafeteria. Well, I was teeny, teeny, tiny. I was so short. So I'm down there walking down the line in that cafeteria, and that jello. Just <laughs> it was jiggling and it was shiny and all that food was so beautiful. Oh, y'all, I still, to this day, I love the cafeteria because of that experience as a child. But anyway, how many of us would go through a cafeteria line and pass up that bright jiggling jello and all that beautiful fruit and all that food with the steam coming off of it? And right there at the end, there's a, a big old vat kind of thing. And there's this gruel-looking porridgey, gross-looking <laughs> stuff, and we pass up all that beautiful, nutritious, beautiful food, and we say, I'll have some of that. And you know what's in that pot? I call it ABC food. Already been chewed. <laughs> <laughs> Would you want me to go 
through the line, pick all the good nutritious food, chew it up, swallow all the nutrients, and then spit back into that pot of gruel. Would then you choose to eat that? That's exactly what you do when you pass up, pass on the Word of God, the beauty and the vitality and the nourishment of God's Word, and you stick with just what somebody else has already read and already done and already experienced from God. It's like eating already been chewed food. That's really gross, isn't it? I think it's really gross to pass up time in the Word of God. I hope that's that's visual enough for me. I'm kind of serious about it. A lot of people say, Laura, I don't know how to study the Word of God. I don't know how to read the Word of God. Laura, I, I can't do that like you. You know what? I don't want you to do it like me. Back when I was a young woman, a little bitty girl, God showed me how to read his book. Find something you can understand and dwell on that and learn of me, and then we'll go from there. Okay? God showed me that. Nobody showed me that. But there is a great book. I don't often publicly recommend books, but there's a great book called Living by the Book. It's by Howard Hendricks. And it is just, I think, just one of the best summaries of how to read the Bible for yourself and get the most out of it. So Howard Hendricks says this, Dusty Bibles lead, always lead to dirty lives. In fact, remember we talked about two teams? You're either in the Word, and the Word is conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ, or you're in the world, and the world is conforming you to its mold. He rightly observes Bible study is essential to spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, and spiritual effectiveness. Girls, I cannot stress firmly enough to you the importance of making a commitment to prioritize the role of the Word of God in your life. It is truth. The Bible is the most sold book in the history of mankind. And today, right now, it is the most neglected book in the history of mankind. So what about you? It's up to you. Now, I was right now going to do two things, but I put more emphasis on the word. Uh, so in your small group questions, there will also be some questions about obedience. Because remember John 14, if you love me, you will obey me. You'll keep my word. I'm going to talk the obedience talk next in my final thing. But you can still talk about obedience, right? Especially those of us that are parents, we understand how much we want obedience from our children. So, I think, is it small group time? Okay. And it's don't let Satan... Get out. <laughs>